0: Hello, I'm Elliot Knight, director of the Alabama State Council on the Arts. Welcome to Alabama Arts Radio. Each week, council staff will introduce you to exceptional artists and special people who make the arts happen in Alabama. Alabama Arts Radio features the visual, performing, literary, and folk arts that contribute to our state's rich cultural heritage. Join us each Wednesday at 9 p.m. Central to explore the diverse and dynamic arts landscape in Alabama.
1: This is Amory marie Anderson, the Folklife Program Manager at the Alabama State Council on the Arts, and I'm in Dothan, Alabama with Jennifer McConnell, interviewing her today about her art. Jennifer, I was wondering if we could start off and if you could introduce yourself. Tell us who you are and tell us what you do.
0: Hi, Amory. marie Thanks for visiting. I am a former English teacher, a small town, southern girl, and I came around to living this creative life over the last few years, because I decided that while being an English teacher had its fulfillments and things that were worthy about it, that I really wanted to devote myself more to living more fully and intentionally as an artist and a creative person in my everyday life. So
1: that's great. Now, so you were an intern with us over the summer at the Alabama Center for Traditional Culture, uh, which is the Folk Life Division of the Council on the Arts, and I'm wondering, we got to know each other really well while you were there this summer, working with, with me and and Ian Kimsey, um, and you you talked a little bit about your family background in the traditional arts, but I'm wondering if you could maybe root us, our our listeners, in your. F- your family background, and tell us a little bit about their work in the traditional arts.
0: Sure. So as I said, I'm from a small town outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and I grew up in a family that was decidedly middle class, but with parents who had strived for that, who had worked for that. My parents are both from families of sharecroppers, so that was a part of who they were, therefore that was a part of who I am. One of my great grandfathers was a white oak basket maker and that tradition was lost on his children. So I never picked that up from my family, but certainly in my community, in the women that raised me, I had an understanding of traditional arts as just a way of being. So while I didn't quilt when I grew up, everybody did. I knew what quilting was. I I knew how to quilt. I figured that if I ever needed to, I could pick up a needle and fabric and and put it together. So for me, traditional arts was not something that was set apart in my life as um, an artistic practice. It was just a day-to-day, a way to live. My parents taught me, everyone taught me that you did what you had to do to survive, to make a living, but also that life was a beautiful thing to be celebrated. So in everything that we did, whether it was someone making a quilt or someone having a garden or preparing a meal, you tried to make it beautiful. So in that way, I grew up with an appreciation for the simple, the practical, and the beautiful as a marriage of things.
1: I'm wondering if maybe we talked a little bit about this, but the idea of permission mm. of of having permission to be a maker, mm-hmm. a creator, mm-hmm. to to have permission mm-hmm. to call yourself yeah that's artist. a that's
0: a very good uh, stepping off point for me because as I said, I grew up from a, a family who taught me to work for things to. Um, you know, achieve and be successful and and whatever that meant. So being an artist was not something that was really something that you ought to do. In other words, being an artist was not necessarily a luxury, but if you couldn't make a living at it, it was seen as sort of impractical. So by the time I spent 20 years as an English teacher dabbling and doing in, in all of these different media, I did finally get to a place where I decided that uh, I was going to try this. And maybe it was about giving myself permission um, to do this kind of work. I think that a big part of the journey that I've been on in the last couple of years has been this sort of seeking of self, right? This kind of finding home out in the world. That's perhaps easier to define. But finding home within myself has been a lot of what this this work has been about. And if I pull that back to kind of how I was raised and, and the people that brought me up, you know, they sort of accepted who they were and were comfortable with who they were, regardless of what those circumstances might've been. And as a more contemporary Person living in the world that I live in, you know, I was caught up in, in striving for some sort of external forms of success. And now I've come back around to, to really defining who I truly am. And and my work has, uh, has helped me work through a lot of that. So
1: that's, that's beautiful. I'm wondering if we could maybe talk about that career shift. Um, Okay, tell us a little bit about, you know, those the beginning ideas of deciding to like, leave teaching and then pursuing art as another vocation and i think also getting into the idea of like we we talk about career changes and careers and and we do get lost in that idea oftentimes of like there's this black and white success and and instead i think you're speaking more about the successes come then from finding your identity through through creation
0: correct so I think that I've always struggled with this pull between external perceptions of self, uh, of success, and then sort of whatever was going on inside of me. And a part of the shift towards a career change, right, was that point in my life when I was tired of that struggle. I was tired of sort of trying to to make all of that fit. And I think I've defined it for other people when we've had this conversation that there comes a time in your life when you begin to regret the things that you've not tried. You begin to regret what you've not attempted. You don't want to get to the end of your life and look back and think, well, I always wanted to paint. I always wanted to be a sculptor. I've never really tried that. So I think that was a big sort of impetus towards it to, to go into that path, to go down that journey and see if there wasn't a different kind of um, freedom and success. Freedom is something that you know you have to cultivate inside of yourself, right? And that's been um a, a part of what I've learned on this path. So making the shift, right? From a stable, you know, quote unquote, career as a teacher to something that may be less stable as a full-time working artist uh, was definitely scary. It was definitely scary, but it was something that I think I had to do to soothe my soul. Right? I, I couldn't I couldn't keep wondering, right? And that is what really led me to pursue this
1: that's great and i'm wondering if maybe um maybe we could talk a little bit about that idea of the traditional arts and how it plays in your practice as an artist i think firstly you know why do the folk and traditional art arts matter to you as as an artist
0: so there are so many reasons um I thought about this this morning before you got here, and there, there are a couple of things. One, the folk arts are timeless. They go in and out of fad in terms of how the world or the art world perceives them. But in reality, it is always um, trendy or in vogue to be able to be self-sufficient, to be able to Make something to keep your family warm from what you have. It's always cool to be able to make do out of nothing, as far as I'm concerned. And so the traditional arts occupies that kind of place. Um, knowing how to make a basket or make a quilt is important. In addition, you know, that kind of practical importance deserves to be revered continually. And it is revered. People, people get that baskets are beautiful in their simplicity and in the effort and labor that goes into them. People understand the, the complications and complexities of quilting. But I think that those kinds of things um, deserve to continue to have attention brought to them. We live in a time where things are throwaway right? So we still have this madly driven consumer society, but we're moving into a different phase in the world where things are getting to be more and more expensive. So I don't think that we can ever forget, um, the need to be able to take care of ourselves in, in these sort of practical ways, whether that's knowing how to quilt, knowing how to can, knowing how to, you know, make a basket, any of those kind of practical arts, I think have relevance possibly for the sustainability of our world going forward, right? We can't continue to live uh, in the way that we've been living. So it's a it's a transcendence uh, for me. The practical, the reverence, uh, and the sustainability, I think, are the three things that um, make traditional arts important for me.
1: And tell me a little bit about how you engage with the techniques and aesthetics of folk and traditional arts mm-hmm. in your own practice.
0: hmm So... I'm going to talk about the aesthetics first, because, you know, for me, the simple and the plain are classic. So in my work, there is a lot of use of, in my quilting work, for example, there's a lot of use of denim, of linen, of cotton. I don't like to use material that is, you know, inorganic or polyester or whatever. it's just a, a sort of choice that I make, but more importantly, it's related to this sort of aesthetic of what people would have had. Um, people would have had flower sacks, people would have had denim, they would have had you know some kind of muslin, some maybe some sort of coarse linen and that's what they would have used. So I have found that usefulness to be a beautiful thing. So that informs my aesthetic on one level. And then on another level, um, there is beauty in the thing that is still useful, even though it may not be beautiful anymore. So uh, one of the series of work that's included in this body of work is a series of chairs, of, of ladder back chairs in ceramics. And the chairs are in various states of distress, The bottoms are busted out of some of them. The leg is broken on on one of them. And yet those kinds of chairs are still useful. And I know this because those chairs were everywhere in my childhood. And if you're from the South, they were somewhere in yours because it's just the way that things were. So there's beauty in the distressed or in the so-called dilapidated because it represents the beauty of a person still trying to live a life, making do with what they have. And there's a beauty in that kind of resilience. So I don't know if we can say that that my aesthetic includes resiliency, the beauty of resiliency, but, but I think it does. And the fabrics that I use, the denim, the linen, the cotton, all of those things speak to that as well.
1: That's great. Um, and we were talking about a little bit, you know, some of the, the women, the traditional artists who help you learn some of these techniques. Could mm-hmm. you maybe talk about sitting with them and learning from them?
0: So uh, Alabama has been absolutely crucial in my um, growth as an artist. And learning certain skills or honing certain skills is due to the women like at Gee's Bend um, a few years ago, I went up to Camp McDowell and took a quilting class with Miss China and Miss Marianne. And you know, I thought I kind of knew how to quilt, but I had never quilted. And sitting with them was like sitting with the women who raised me, sitting with my aunts. And you know, Miss China, I said, Miss China, I, I don't know how to quilt. I don't know what I'm doing. And she said, Well, go ahead. Do what you're going to do. And I did and started and she would come back over and she would say, see, you know what you're doing. And that kind of, you know, affirmation, right, um, was very important to me. But it was also important just to have her uh, acknowledge that, well, you're a woman, you're from the South, you're Black, you know how to do it. Go ahead, you know. Similarly, the pine needle basketry that I use... I learned from Miss um, Odessa Rice and Annette Jordan over in Utah, and I went and sat with them one Saturday or Sunday, and you know we just sat around and they similarly said, "Well, go ahead. Here's how you do it. <laughs> go ahead and do it." And I remember after I went to that visit, someone asked me if I had taken any pictures in in that. You know, afternoon, and I said, "Well, no, we just sat around and ate barbecue and had pound cake. Why would I take it?" Was I was sitting with my with my aunties. So there's a community of of doing and and showing that is not performative. And our society has become so performative. And that's what I appreciate. I think about those kinds of relationships um, with just real people. I mean,
1: yeah, that's great. And I think going off on this, like implicit in folk art. And in folk traditions, is this idea of teaching or passing down from community member to community member, or family member to family member? Mm-hmm. And I'm, and I'm wondering if maybe you could maybe speak to that—the intersection of your long, deep experience in teaching, even though it's in kind of a formal educational setting—and your artistic practice.
0: Hmm. So the, the intersection of teaching and passing down, right? Mm -hmm. They're the same, right? They're the same. And they're necessary. So, you know, I could have watched a YouTube video about how to coil pine needle baskets, but it was so much better to sit with Miss Odessa and have her sort of make fun at my weird stitches until I got them right. And, you know, there's a there's an emotional exchange that happens in the passing down of traditions that I think you can't get in a formal setting. It doesn't matter if I'm learning how to do quilting or do pine needle baskets, or my mom is showing me how to make biscuits, right? There's no recipe to making biscuits. You just stand there and you watch or do it, and then you do it until you get it right. So the the intersection of the two is that they both have value and they both have a place but I think that for traditional folk arts there's just nothing like sitting with someone and watching and then doing that's that's the important part it's the it's the human connection that is sometimes absent in a formal setting um and and I I appreciate that in some ways more than the formal, right? The formal for me is was easier. School in itself was not a hard thing for me to go through, but to sit and be critiqued by these masters, now that's intimidating, right? So if you get Miss Chime to say, yeah, okay, you know what you're doing, that's something, right? I'd rather have that than an A on A on a paper. I was thinking this morning about Sort of this narrative thread that runs through my work, and the influence of all of these black women writers who have said so much, so much better than I can. So all of the time, there is something that some character from a Toni Morrison novel said. There is something that Janie Crawford from Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Newhurst and said running through my head all the time. And the kinds of things that these women talked about, about what it means to be a black woman, about what it means to be a southern woman, about what it means to be a black southern woman going through whatever they're going through, were the kinds of things that, you know, I always hoped that I would get to a point where I would understand more deeply and where I could live the kind of internal freedom that Janie lived eventually, that Celie came to live eventually, despite this and that, and that man and that problem and whatever. And so that sort of desire to to be what those women were is something that's always sort of informed my life, and it informs my work. I think that's uh, I think that's crucial. Zora Neale Hurston's sort of character has so much importance for so many people in the South, but for me, you know, I just I just look and think about um, that quote that she says. You know, there are years that ask questions and years that answer. And I remember the first time I read that book when I was 15 or whatever. And I thought, what in what in the world does that mean? And now at 50, oh, do I know, right? How do I know? So I think um, that narrative piece and that narrative influence, um, whether it's those formal books or the stories that you hear everybody in your community tell, your family, your church members, the the women that taught me quilting, the women that taught me basketry. I think that's what informs who we are and and who I am.
1: Tell us a little bit about how listeners could experience your work.
0: So there are a few pieces that are currently on exhibit at the Wiregrass Museum here in Dothan. And those are Available for viewing for another few weeks as a part of the Teaching Artist Exhibit there called Making Others See. I have a show coming up at the Bells Gallery um, here in Dothan, a new contemporary space that we're all thrilled to have. Uh, And then I'm on the interweb uh, at Jennifer McConnell on Instagram.
1: Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today.
0: Absolutely. I've really enjoyed it, Anne-Marie. Thank you.
2: This and many other episodes of Alabama Arts also are available as podcast. These include interviews with a variety of writers, visual artists, musicians, and dancers who either work or have performed here in Alabama. Many of the arts educators who work with Alabamians of all ages appear on the program as well. If you enjoyed the show you just heard, you'll find more episodes of Alabama Arts wherever you get your podcasts. Alabama Arts comes to you from the Alabama State Council on the Arts and the Alabama Center for Traditional Culture. Technical production by Deb Boykin. Series theme music, The Bounds of Beauty, written and performed by Scooter Muse. This week on Alabama Arts, Anne Marie Anderson talks with Jennifer McConnell, an artist who discusses the traditional arts practiced in her family.
0: But certainly in my community, in the women that raised me, I had an understanding of traditional arts as just a way of being. So while I didn't quilt when I grew up, everybody did, I knew what quilting was I?
2: That's Wednesday, 9 p.m. Central on Troy Public Radio. Tonight on Alabama Arts, Anne Marie Anderson talks with Jennifer McConnell, an artist who discusses the traditional arts practiced in her family and how they influence her work and artistic choices. She reflects on how the act of learning from traditional masters gives a depth of understanding of the tradition and her role in its practice.
0: But certainly in my community, in the women that raised me, I had an understanding of traditional arts as just a way of being. So while I didn't quilt when I grew up, everybody did. I knew what quilting was, I I knew how to quilt. I figured that if I ever needed to, I could pick up a needle and fabric and, and put it together. So for me, traditional arts was not Something that was set apart in my life as um, an artistic practice. It was just a day-to-day, a way to live.
2: But first, the news.